Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. Well, this is week 13. This is the final presentation of this quarter, where we've been looking at God's mission, my mission. And this week, we are looking at the end of God's mission. What does that look like? We are going to end on a very, very high note this week. But let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us through this last quarter as we've looked at how you call each of us to be active in ministry, sharing our faith with others, both near and far. And we ask that as we draw everything to a close this week, you will give us inspiration and encouragement to continue on that mission. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're grateful to have back with us again Greg Whitsett one final time. He's the planning director at Adventist Mission. Greg, thanks for joining us again. Happy to be here. So we're looking now at the, at the very end of things here. This is a fascinating title, The End of God's Mission. You, we don't think of God's mission coming to an end. We think of, of God and his, his perpetuity. He continues. And yet there's, there's a part of this mission that comes to an end. Talk about the events surrounding what this, this last lesson is all about. Well, you know, it is interesting, and of course we probably have to couch it because God always has a mission, but the mission we're talking about, of course, is the rescue of his cherished children on planet Earth. Peter is amazing in his writing. He doesn't write as much as Paul, but he has some very powerful things, and both his letters, First and Second Peter, are filled with so much good um, exhortation, good teaching for us. But in verse 11, it says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and chastening the coming of the day of God? And it stops there. It continues a little bit, but that's the part for the memory verse. Um, This responsibility that we have of two things, to look for, but also to hasten uh, Christ's return. And we kind of look at that a little bit this week in this lesson. And I think looking forward to, we all look forward to that. At least we should. You know, looking <laughs> exactly. at the world that's, that surrounds us and the, the mayhem and the problems and the challenges, looking forward to that. And, and then this, this concept, as you say, of, uh, of hastening, um, that's powerful. Uh, what about hastening with respect to, to mission? How does that sort of fit in together? How can we do that? You know, when I look at that verse, uh, looking for and hastening, the looking for is both my eagerness, the, the, the condition of my heart, but it's also the, the spending time in God's word in prophecy to understand uh, what's about to happen, but also this, what's going on in the world around me, uh, the signs of the times that, that uh, indicate that his coming is near based on what we know from scripture. Um, but the hastening part of it is all about mission. That's what we are doing in hastening. Uh, his his return. And what I'd like to do is actually turn to Revelation and look at it because Revelation is uh, a missionary manual. <laughs> it's all about mission and, and what our mission is um, after the New Testament period. So it's, it's what is God doing and what, are we, what, should we, what should we be doing? But I, w- I don't want you to just take my word for it. Let's actually look at Revelation chapter 1 and see, well, what evidence do we have for this? Look specifically, of course, it begins with the beautiful words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is God's mission. It is, it is Jesus Christ that revelation is pointing to. That's the center of, of everything in this book. But let's skip down to verse uh, 6, 
where it talks about that God has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it's this doxology, but it's focusing on that we are made as kings and priests. And that should remind us of another passage in Peter's writings in the first book, where he talks about us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, which I think is such a beautiful thing that that we're both kings and priests, which if we're kings, that means we're members of God's royal family because he is king of kings, right? And so the whole idea of that is, of course, that we're ruling with him, that we're part of his governance of earth, but more importantly, that we are priests. And the role of a priest is to be the ones to actually bless right? To actually bring God's blessings back in when the sacrificial system, the, the daily sacrifices would begin in the morning with the, with the sacrifice and in the evening. But the priest would take, after he had, had um, uh, sacrificed the lamb, he would then take incense from the altar. He'd go in to the holy place and he, that would represent the prayers of the people, of course, the, the ascending up before God. But then afterwards, the, the whole congregation in the wilderness tabernacle, they, they'd all be waiting because the priest would come out with a blessing and he would bless the people. So as priests, that's our role. Our role is to bless people, but also the priests are to educate and to draw people to God. And so that's really what I think this, a, a very clear indication, uh, verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and everyone who pierced him, and all, this, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. So, on the one hand, we are kings and priests, but, all, but on the se- other hand, um, his coming is in the cloud. So, we have the focus on the second coming, but we see this role that we have in context with his return, which I believe this is pointing, that this is all about mission. We are his missionaries. Very, very powerful. Now, let me jump to Monday's lesson. On Monday's lesson, you, you summarize the three angels' messages. Mm-hmm. Um, take us through this. Why is it so important for us to understand the three angels' messages? And why is it so relevant for us today? You know, you can only fit so much into one day. So I'm glad for this opportunity to build on this a little bit to, to some of the things I was not able to share in that lesson. The, the whole book of Revelation is dealing with the issue of once and for all, restoring and correcting the evil, the, 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 the injustice, uh, sin, death, all of this that's in the world. So there's this anticipation, this desire that even though Christ has, has died and rose again, that we're not yet receiving the full gift of his promise to restore uh, this world. So in, in actually Revelation chapter 5, um, we have this interesting picture um, Maybe what I could ask you to do is just to read uh, verses 1 through 3. This is Revelation 5, 1 through 3. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Isn't that something? So 
let's think about that for a moment. We have this scroll with the seven seals, which is a very interesting thing by itself. But the thing that stands out to me the most, I don't know if it does to you, but it's actually in verse 4, where, where John writes, he inserts himself into this, uh, where he, he says, I wept much. John, what's wrong with you? Why are you weeping? I mean, that's kind of absurd, isn't it? Why, why would you, I don't know if you've ever woken up from a dream and you realize you're crying, you know, it's so real. Well, this isn't a dream. This is a vision. This is a supernatural experience he's happening uh, that God is helping him to understand what Jesus Christ is doing to finish the mission. Um, but here John is weeping. He understands something that I think we don't understand. And I think that's important to understand the rest of Revelation. The scroll actually represents a legal document. And it was a tradition in Rome that you would have multiple seals like this for a more important document, such as a will and testament or this type of thing. So John knows that there's a problem in heaven because we have this document, which I think is a, is, it's a, it's a will or it's a, it's a title or a deed. And it's very important that no one has that ability to open. But the one who is able, you know, John weeps because he sees the problem. But then the one who is able to is, is Jesus Christ. So he is in the process of, you know, our planet has been hijacked by Satan. Uh, and he has tried to claim ownership of this place. And now here, after Christ's resurrection, he comes back to heaven. And he is able to receive that scroll because he is now the rightful inheritor of what Adam lost. Adam lost and died, but Jesus has now won it back through his life, death, and resurrection. So that, that's kind of an important picture. So what we see happening is that now we're going to understand what are these seven seals, which we, this lesson we don't get into. But the fifth seal is what's important. Because again, we're trying to understand the end time mission and the theme that we're seeing in Revelation. But it, the fifth, in chapter 6, uh, could you read verse 9 and 10? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, I don't know. When we think of blood being avenged and people crying out, I I immediately think of Genesis with the story of Cain and Abel and how Abel, you know, in his... He's having this, he's murdered by his brother, and God approaches Cain and says, the blood of your brother is cried out to me. So this is symbolic. It's not that there's souls in heaven that are crying out under the altar. This is all symbolic language, but it's basically God sees the injustice, the persecution, this sort of thing. Um, And what we didn't read, actually, I forgot to mention this, but um, actually the result of Christ being able to take the scroll is that all heaven breaks forth in celebration and in praise. Um, and it's interesting, if we can go back to that, um, in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Beautiful picture. So there's this injustice that the Messiah, that the Lamb, uh, Jesus, has 
is starting to correct by his own shed blood, right? But then here we have in, in chapter 6 where there's still this not yet. There's something left. And so there's this question, how long is this going to continue? Um, and so that's the theme of Revelation, which helps us understand when we get to Revelation 14 what it all means. Of course, in Revelation 13, just as we come into the three angels' messages in 14, before we get there in chapter 13, we see that for 42 months, there's this persecution of the sea beast, and there's martyrs and things happening. Uh, of course, the, the 42 months refer to symbolic 1,260 days, um, and it takes us all the way to the end of time with the three angels' messages, which are focusing on saying, okay, now you have the sea beast, you have the land beast, they're actually forcing you to, to obey them, they're persecuting those who do not obey them but follow God. So then the messages are very straightforward. And a lot of people think that these messages are somehow negative, that they're not relevant. But all the, all, it can be easily summarized in this, that this is the message that anyone who has ever faced injustice are grateful to hear because the hour of judgment, God is going to correct the problems. So worship him because he's going to judge. That's what angel one is all about. Angel two, it's all about Babylon has fallen. This power that's persecuting is fallen. And it reminds me of another time when God judged. And, and actually, it was Babylon, right? Remember Belshazzar's feast in Daniel chapter 5? Right. Where the handwriting on the wall, many, many, tekel, eupharsin. You weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's that moment. God is writing on the wall, so to speak, through the second angel's message to say, hey, you know, the judgment says that you are condemned. Mm-hmm. And then the third angel's message is simply separate yourself from anything to do with this earthly power that's obviously in rebellion and is persecuting the righteous. And by faith, keep God's commandments. Be loyal to him. Even though you're not sure if it's going to play out, have faith in God's word that everything is going to be fine. So in these three messages, these are three messages of good news, of of justice, of rectifying wrongs, of, of hope if you will, not anything to fear, a great deal of hope there. And we hope that you are finding that these messages are a great deal of hope. We're pulling the last bits of this quarter together as we're looking at the end of God's mission. And just so I don't leave you without one final opportunity, if you really want to understand this quarter's lessons so much better, be sure that you pick up the companion book to this quarter's lesson, It is God's mission, my mission. You can find it at itiswritten.shop. And it adds a great deal of depth and breadth and resources to what we've been looking at about God's mission being your mission and my mission. We're going to come back with the very last few thoughts about what it means for God's mission to come to an end and the role that you and I have to play in it. We'll be right back. During Hollywood's golden age, an era of glitz and glamour, one man's melody would transcend time and touch the hearts of millions. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is still heard and enjoyed every Christmas season. But behind the song is a story of not only the song, but also its composer. From humble beginnings in Alabama, Hugh Martin would travel to New York City where a chance encounter with the legendary Judy Garland would catapult him to fame. 
Learn this untold story of fame, faith, and a miraculous transformation. Amid trials and tribulations came a life-changing encounter that would shape Hugh Martin's destiny. Join me for A Blessed Little Christmas and learn the story behind the song, the story of a man who turned away from the bright lights to embrace a loving Savior. A Blessed Little Christmas, brought to you by It Is Written TV. There's something I want to tell you about that is so important. It's My Place With Jesus. It Is Written's ministry to children. Take the children you care about to MyPlaceWithJesus.com. At My Place With Jesus, you'll find so much that will bless your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or the children at church. There are the My Place With Jesus Bible Guides, 21 studies that will take the children you care about into the Word of God. They'll learn the important things, especially the love of God and the sacrifice Jesus made for them. As well, take your children to Journey Through the Bible. It's there at MyPlaceWithJesus.com. It's a special Bible reading program that will get children into the habit of reading their Bible daily and connecting with God regularly. So don't forget, MyPlaceWithJesus.com from It Is Written. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're looking at the end of God's mission here. We've been talking about the significance of the three angels' message uh, in light of this, of the importance, the significance, the, the hope that we find there. What should we really be looking at as our focus at the end of time? What role do we play in all of this? Well, thankfully... Even though God is quite capable of doing everything, we play such an important role because he has put us dead center as kings and priests at the center of his mission. Um, And it's interesting, you know, there's, when we think about mission and we think about success, how do we measure success? How do we know that we're on the right track and that sort of thing? I think that we can often focus on the wrong things. Um, There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul is pointing out to the church of Corinth, you know, they're kind of, a little bit of conflict they're having there. Um, He says, I planted. Apollos came and he watered, but God gave the increase. So success ultimately is God's responsibility. But both Paul and Apollos had a very important part to play in the development of the the church in the city of Corinth in his time. So clearly... um, what I think our focus should be is on the role we play, leaving those results to God's hands, uh, because he's the only one that can actually bear fruit. He's the one who gives the blessing uh, to the work we're doing. But there's, there's two things I want to focus on to think about the success. The first is that God has told us clearly in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, that we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all things I've commanded you. And I'll be with you even to the end of the age, she talks. Well, what's interesting in, in that, those verses is that there's four things, but the, but the heart of it is to make disciples. That's the only imperative. The others are actually forming more like uh, modifiers to, to add meaning to what that central command word is. Um, but also, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Imitate me. And I remember when I was studying uh, theology in uh, college, Atlantic Union College um, in Massachusetts, 
Um, I came across that verse and I was spending some time studying that. I was like, boy, that seems kind of conceited. Imitate me. Um, what does Paul mean with that? And I began to realize as I explored and understood more that Paul's saying, just as I'm following Christ, you also follow Christ in that way. So he's, he's wanting them to imitate him and how he follows. So discipleship is at the heart of what mission is all about. Therefore, when it comes to identifying success, we need to be looking at disciples. What qualities do they need to have? Because these disciples need to be able to withstand the opposition of the world. They need to have a loyalty when many who follow Christ are actually not being loyal. So I think that the same place that we were just at in Revelation 14 is a great place to look to understand what kinds of disciples uh, they should be. Could, maybe you could read for us, just to set this, the context, uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Okay, so this is the scene that we're setting. Now let's skip down and let's look at uh, 4 and 5. Read those, please. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay, the study guide actually gets in and has us look at a number of verses to help us understand Uh, what some of these are. It doesn't have it all connected with this passage, but this is where I'm drawing that from in the uh, study guide. There's there's basically four pieces here I'd like to to focus on. The first one in verse 4 is that they are not defiled with women for they are virgins. Now, of course, this means that this is symbolic. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul is actually exhorting, again, the church of Corinth. (laughs) We refer back to the church of Corinth where he tells them, I've betrothed you to Christ. Stay pure and connected to him. So this, the idea here of them being virgins and not being defiled, not being impure, is the idea that they have one fiancé. And of course, what is the wedding? It's the second coming of Christ. So their first love and their only love is Christ. Um, And so the, the type of disciples that we should be making are people who are thoroughly and completely and absolutely in love with Christ. And there's no other God's before them. Uh, The second is here, uh, these are the ones who do what? They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Let's let's take a look at a Bible passage. Many of us are familiar with John 10, verse 10. The thief comes to kill, to destroy, um, um, but I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, Jesus says. And he identifies himself as the good shepherd. But look, if you could, read verse 27 there. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Ah. So there's something about, here, of course, in Revelation, it was we are following the lamb, but here now he's the shepherd. So we, both images or are, are, are metaphors are used for who Christ is. But here they have the ability to, to know, to recognize God's voice. And a lot of times we think, well, that's just the Word of God. And of course, that is. The Word of God is the standard of knowing God's will. But 
the Bible doesn't tell us who to witness to or what to say to them. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell me, you know, if I'm a young person, what, what degree should I study in college? Or if I'm uh, wanting to get a, a different job, well, should I take this one or not? In Paul's experience, of course, the Holy Spirit met him one night. His plan was to go to Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go to Europe. And so he goes in a different direction. This is something that I think is what it means to hear the voice of God, to follow the Lamb wherever he leads us. And later, uh, Jesus even refers to the fact that he's going to give the disciples the Holy Spirit, and he's going to guide you into all truth. Not that it's going to be different than everything he had taught, but that it was going to continue to open and to be revealed to them more and more as they were carrying out his mission. So I think that this is an important characteristic of a disciple, that they are able to discern God's will and to follow him in every unique situation. The next item there that we see in Revelation 14 is going down into verse 5, is that there's no deceit found in their mouths, or maybe no guile, it says in the Old King James, or no lies, some, some of the translation to talk about. You know, John says that if anyone says that I have no sin, the truth is not in them. The greatest deception, I think, is not just the deception of, of speaking against the Word of God, but it's the deception where I think I'm good, where I think that, uh, you know, I, I have no problem. But to recognize our own need of correction and of growth is so important. The last point I want to point out here is uh, in verse 5, it says that they have, they're without fault before the throne of God. And this picture also in the study guide, you can look at the different verses there, but we see that the, the great multitude that come out of the tribulation have their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are important things. That This is the qualities of the disciples. So if we're thinking about success, we need to be thinking... These are the kinds of disciples that we want to disciple. Not just enough to say, oh yeah, you have the truth, I'll be baptized and I'll come to church, but where they're growing and strengthening also in their relationship with Christ. Greg, we haven't much time left, but if somebody was going through this quarter's lesson and said, I want to be more effective in mission, Mm. what encouragement would you give them and how would they move forward? Well, I'd like to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if we could take a quick look at that. I'd like to leave you with this. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. You know, the the ability, we need to come together, press together, to stir each other up in love and good works. Of course, this love is a love to seek and to save the lost. The love that God has for this world is the love he wants to have in our hearts, which will be the, the means that we have to hasten his soon return. Powerful words to, to leave this quarter off with. Greg, thank you so much for joining us, and we appreciate you joining us too. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that we have inspired and encouraged and and, uh, and perhaps the Lord is impressing you to be more fervent in sharing the love of Jesus with others. We pray that God will bless you as you continue to put into practice the things that you have learned this quarter. And we look forward to seeing you next week for a brand new quarter of Sabbath School here on It Is Written. It Is Written.